Well, good morning. Why are you this morning? Yeah, that too. That too. Think about that question for a minute. Um, before I get rolling, I want to thank you all. Uh, you guys still hold the record for the fastest church to come on board with us as a supporting church. Uh, we came here probably sometime around 1993 or 94, I don't remember. And uh, we visited for a Sunday, went back to Connecticut on Sunday evening. And uh, this was back in the days of Pastor Dean, and Pastor Dean called us on Tuesday. So the missions board here at that time made a decision in less than 48 hours. Um, that's pretty unusual for mission boards. So you guys do hold the record. Uh, you've been supporting us since the mid-90s. Thank you so much for your prayers and for funding all that we have uh, been serving the Lord to do for all of these years. We spent, shoot, 15 years running a program for the Free Church called Youth Builders, taking high schoolers overseas. Uh, after that, we were involved in training and logistics for short-term mission teams nationally uh, with the Free Church. And uh, the last four years, Bear and I have been in Peru uh, doing earthquake response, We've built a number of homes for people that couldn't afford to rebuild after the earthquake that happened there in 19, or no, in 2007. Um, and uh, we also helped our Peruvian partners there plant a church, a little town called Chincha, about three hours south of the capital of Lima, right on the coast. You know, people would ask us, you know, here we're in Peru, and ask us how high we are. And I'd say, oh, about 30, 40 feet. You know, you could practically throw a rock to the beach from our house. But um, it was a good time, and the time came for us to turn it over to the national church, the Peruvian church, and for us to go home. And it was really a mixed blessing. It was like, cool, they can do this without us. Dang, they can do this without us. And uh, so it was, it was a mixed blessing. And now Bear and I are in transition. That's a fancy way of saying we're not sure what's next. We're going to continue with the Free Church as missionaries, uh, but they don't have an assignment for us quite yet. And so the mission actually has a, a director of transition, and we are working with her. And as director of transition, just to give you an idea, um, if you're getting married, that's a big transition in life. She has resources for that. If you're going to have a baby, that's a big transition in life. She has resources for that. Uh, if you are um, changing from one mission field to another or one division in the mission to another, like Bear and I are, uh, she has resources for that. Um, and there's reading and homework and, and assessments and all kinds of stuff that we've been doing with the transition director to try and determine what will be the best fit. And all of this is designed to find a place where we can live in our sweet spot and, and continue to serve the Lord with the Free Church. So it's kind of exciting. For the first time in about 30 years of, of mission work, I have no idea. We're moving from Ministry A to Ministry B, and I have no clue what Ministry B looks like. That's really odd for us. Um, but it's where the Lord has us right now, and as I say, we are working with the director of transition to, to figure out what the next steps are. So all of that to say that uh, 
we're very appreciative of your involvement with us over these low many moons and years and uh, appreciate your continued involvement as we move forward. So why are we? did a, a youth retreat about a month ago now and is it okay if I run around up here? I'm not going to mess up your, because um, I, I do like to be mobile. Um, I uh, did a youth retreat uh, and, and the topic was our calling and how do you know you're called? And a couple of the things, as I thought about that, what would I have been helped by if I had known it back when God first led me into missions, led me out of the normal working world? I'm a machinist as well. That was what I did for a living when I was in my 20s. And uh, what would it have been helpful to know then that I know now? And it was a high school retreat, and I thought, well, there's two things in particular and, and one of them is, why are you today? Uh, there, there's a Bible answer for that. And I like to do things interactively. We'll do a little bit of that today. But today, I'm, this I'm going to spoon feed you a little bit. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is talking about um, how he was chosen, how the Ephesians were chosen to be followers of Jesus. And in, in verse 12, we'll just pick it up in the middle, and you can read to, to understand and, and read the context later. In verse 12 it says, In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. That's why we are. And that little word there, in order that we might be... I think that little two-letter word is really, really important for us. Because it, it gives us a clue. Help me out here. Define this word, be, to be. It's a verb. What does it mean? Somebody tell me. A state of being. Okay, that's using the word to define the word. That's cheating, and according to my English teacher. Be, to be, to exist to draw breath, to walk upon the earth, to get up in the morning, to go to bed at night. Okay, you can define it a lot of different ways, but the essence of it is that we exist. I am, you, they, we, he, she, it, is. The scripture here says, in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glory. In other words, I am for the praise of his glory. You all are for... Yes. Tim is for the praise of his glory. We are for the praise of his glory. Doesn't that just really boil down that existential question that we all have in high school or college or somewhere thereabouts about why am I here? Doesn't that really boil it down to a very clear essence for us? I am. I was created. I was placed here and I belong here. Why? For the praise of his glory. And you know what? 
we all get to do it different ways. And that's really cool. That's kind of the appendix at the front. Turn with me to Exodus, chapter 2, verses, verse 23. I think that the Old Testament is really, really cool. And I love to look at the history of Israel because it gives me an example through the life of Israel as a people of how God wants to work in my life as an individual. And there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that is about Israel that really doesn't apply to us, but there's a lot of it that does. And that's a key reason why I think it's important to have a handle on what's going on in the Old Testament. And what I'd like to do this morning is, is take a, a broad, wide-angle look at a segment of, of Israel's history, and we're going to do the zoom lens kind of thing on a couple of issues as we go along. Now, Israel became Israel because of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and promises that God made to them that they would become the father of the fathers of a great nation. Well, you remember Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by uh, his brothers, ends up in Egypt, has a lot of different experiences in Egypt, is unjustly accused, and, and a number of things happened to him that are really unfortunate. And then the long and the short of it is he ends up as the number two guy in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the emperor of Egypt. Um, and he ends up, because of God's gifting for him and God's anointing upon him, he ends up saving not only the nation of Egypt from a huge famine, but many of the nations around so he becomes a very honored person, moves his whole family to Egypt. And as families tend to do, they grew and grew and grew. And the Pharaoh that knew uh, Joseph died. And other Pharaohs came along who didn't know Joseph. And eventually, after about 400 years, during that 400 years period of time, Israel became slaves to the Egyptians. Exodus 2.23 says, During that long period, about 400 years, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So God heard their cry. Exodus 3, verse 7. God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and am concerned about their suffering." And when God is concerned about something, he doesn't just look on. He doesn't. He acted. You remember how he acted? He raised up Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh said, uh-uh, no way, not doing it. And God proceeded to convince Pharaoh, that he really ought to let his people go. And he did that, as you recall, through the plagues. Interesting thing about the plagues, and we're just going to kind of brush over it this morning. Each of the plagues addressed 
one of the many gods of Egypt. Egypt was a pantheistic society. They believed in many gods. They worshipped the Nile. Osiris was the god whose bloodstream was considered to be the Nile. Osiris was one of their key gods. The Nile was a key ingredient in their agriculture and their success as a nation. And when the Nile turned to blood, you remember that? What did that say about Osiris? That was a crushing defeat at the hands of the God of Moses. There was a goddess of the Nile named Anket. The frogs, those were the next ones to come along, the frogs. And in Egypt at that time, frogs were considered a symbol of good luck. It was good luck to have a frog in your home. Because there was another god, small g, who was represented by that frog. It was a god of, of good luck. And for a while there, they had a little too much of a good thing. The lice and the gnats and the flies, all of those things were representatives, were symbolic of one of the gods of Egypt. The death of the livestock. There was a goddess named uh, Hathor who was believed to care for the souls of the Egyptian dead. And when the livestock in Egypt died, what did that say about the capacity of this goddess to care for the souls of their dead. It was another crushing defeat at the hands of Moses' God, at the hands of the God of Israel. There were others. There was Imhotep, God of healing science. And all of a sudden, all of the Egyptians had boils. And all of their healing sciences and their sorcery could not cure these boils. Another crushing defeat. The hail. They had gods of storm and of battle that were said to control the natural elements. Well, when the hail came and destroyed everything in Egypt, that was another crushing defeat of an Egyptian god. The locusts tagged up so many gods and goddesses of fertility, I'm not even going to go there. And then the darkness. I remember as a little kid reading about the darkness in Egypt, thinking, well, why didn't they just light a lantern? Light a fire in the fireplace. I grew up in Connecticut. We had blackouts in the wintertime a lot of times when the snow and and ice would bring power lines down. And, And it was no big deal. We just close up the living room, light a fire in the fireplace, put a couple of lanterns on a table, and we were good to go. It was not a big deal. But later on as an adult, it occurred to me that the darkness that fell on Egypt at that time was not a natural darkness. It was a supernatural darkness that came from Almighty God. And as a result, it did no good to light a candle. It did no good to start a fire because the light from those things could not penetrate this God-centered darkness that was caused by God. It was a supernatural darkness. So the Bible says they took to their beds. 
They get tired of running into tables and chairs and tripping over one another and bumping into walls and doors. So they took to their beds because it was a supernatural darkness. God's thought, they believed, had placed the sun, the moon, and the stars and gave Isis the power to raise the dead. Sekhmet was the goddess of fire who could not penetrate this darkness. And Ra, the sun god, their principal god. Even the sun could not shine during this period of supernatural darkness. More crushing defeats of the gods that Egypt worshipped. And finally, the death of the firstborn. Everything, the firstborn of absolutely everything was dedicated to Ra. And Ra could not protect them. The Bible says that after each plague, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because he was not done demonstrating his power and his glory over all of the things that Egypt worshipped. And when he had crushed the last one, Pharaoh said what? Go, take your people, get out of here, please! But that didn't last very long. Israel leaves and and did a good job, I understand, from the Bible of, of plundering the Egyptians, taking gold and jewelry and gems and I don't know what all else. But after they were... A day or two out, Pharaoh changed his mind, sent the army after him. And so here's Egypt, chasing after Israel. Here's Israel. You remember where they were? Where were they? They're backed up against the Red Sea. Okay? Backed up against the Red Sea, and here comes the Egyptian army. So they're between the sea and the army. And what did Israel say to Moses? You idiot! Did you bring us out here in the middle of the desert just to die like this? So, you remember what happened? The parting of the Red Sea, and Israel got to walk through on dry land. I I think that must have been a really cool experience. There were a million or a million and a half of them, and, and they walked through... There, there were these walls of water, and, and, and I think it was probably something like when, when you go to Epcot or SeaWorld and you're walking through those under, underwater tunnels and there's fish there and everything. And so they got their aquarium experience, and they got out there, and then they come up on the other side. And then as soon as all the Israelites are out, the Egyptian army chases them through. Splash. And the Egyptian army is gone. And Israel is saved. God used a series of positive and negative miracles. Negative miracles being the plagues. A positive miracle being the Red Sea experience. To bring Israel out of slavery and into freedom and an opportunity to become his people. In a very similar way, 
those of us who know Jesus, God has taken us from our slavery to sin and selfish desire and freed us from that. And in each of our cases, in each story represented here this morning, I'm sure that each of us can point to positive miracles and negative miracles, positive and negative situations in our life that caused us to choose to come to Jesus. Very similar to the experience that Israel had where God, through those positive and negative miracles, brought us to a point where we could pass from our slavery to sin into newness of life and light in Jesus Christ. So that's one similarity between our life and the life of Israel. Just one other thing. When they got through the Red Sea, they started grumbling about the food. So what did God do? Gave them manna and gave them quail. Manna in the morning, quail at night, and he fed them. And I'm betting the ladies came up with some really creative recipes for quail after a while. So when God saved us, the next thing that happened in Israel's life, in the life of Israel, let me, let me just really quickly talk about what happened when, uh, when we are saved. When he saved Israel, well, yeah, when we're saved, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has come, the, new has, the, the old has gone, the new has come. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed us from our transgressions. Micah 7.19 says, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our, all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Right along with Pharaoh's armies. You know what? No one's ever found Pharaoh's armies. I think he wiped them out with the intent that they remained wiped out, should be the same way with our sin. You know, a lot of us have a pet sin. I don't know what yours is, but we all have them. And and the sad thing about having a pet sin is that's the lid on your growth in Christ. Until you get rid of that pet sin... You've got a lid in place that's not going to go away. When we repent of that pet sin, God is then freed to do some other things in our lives. What happened with Israel? After about three months more of travel, they arrived at a place called Mount Sinai, where they spent about a year. And at Mount Sinai, Moses went up on the mountain and received the law. He came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Won't go into all the details of that story, but an interesting thing about that, after he had spent time in the presence of God, when he came down, he glowed. 
They were afraid of him. They asked him to put a veil over his face because he was physically glowing. And it scared him. There's things about God that we should be scared of. But at the same time, we should have a glow about us because of the presence that we spend with Almighty God. So he gave them the law. A couple of the things that happened through the law. When Israel left Egypt, there were a band of slaves. A big band, a million and a half or so, give or take. But they were a band of slaves. They were fairly ignorant people. Now, my dad always said, stupid is forever. Ignorance can be fixed. Ignorance, just in that you don't educate a slave. An educated slave is a dangerous thing. And so they were an uneducated people. They didn't have a lot of social structure. They didn't, have, they didn't know what it meant to be a nation. So during this time at Mount Sinai, God taught them several things. First off, he taught them through the law how God wanted them to relate to him. That's something we need to learn as well. How does God wish for us to relate to him? God taught them how to relate to one another through the law. A lot of the laws you read, you read Leviticus. I like to read Leviticus because it speaks to me of how reasonable God is. So he taught them how to relate to one another. Another thing that the law taught them during that one-year period of time is how to relate to the nations around them. God was very clear about how he wanted Israel to relate to the nations around them. So how to relate to him, how to relate to one another, and how to relate to the other nations. He gave them the tabernacle. Fascinating study. Someday you should do it. Study of how the tabernacle foreshadowed the coming and the ministry of Jesus Christ. There's a lot that went on in the tabernacle or in the temple of Israel that pointed toward the coming Messiah. And to study and understand those things is a fascinating thing, not the topic of today's message. And the tabernacle was directly tied to the religious structure. This period of time, this one-year time at Mount Sinai, could be described as Israel's basic discipleship period. Their time to learn about how to relate to God, how to relate to one another, and how to relate to the nations all around them. God wants us to clearly understand those things too. During this time, he carefully established a national identity for Israel, his chosen people. Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice, this is King James because I like the way it's written here. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Deuteronomy 14.2. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord. The Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself. Deuteronomy 26, the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee that thou shouldst keep all his commandments. Peculiar people. Let's bring it into the New Testament. 
Still in King Jimmy because I like that word peculiar. Looking for that blessed hope in Titus 2, 13 and 14. Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. 1 Peter 2, 9. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth. And here's why we are. You should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A peculiar people. Now, peculiar today means he's weird, really strange. But really, that's, not, that's a connotation that's not the denotation. Words matter when you're talking about God and, and the Bible. And, and, and this is talking about special, unique, set apart, precious, this, this word, peculiar, means that you're not like all the rest. There's something different, but not necessarily. It doesn't have to be that you're weird and strange. Just as God carefully established for Israel a new identity as his chosen people, he wants us to recognize our identity as followers of Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creature, a new creation. That's important. How many of you, raise your hands, would say you're a saint? How many of you would say you're a sinner saved by grace? More sinners than saints, I see here. I ought to work on that, Tim. If you change your mind, I want you to, I want you to say, raise your hand again. Romans 1.7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 2 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, which are in all Achaia. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus. In Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. With, and these guys are the afterthought, the bishops and deacons. At least 45 times in the New Testament... Ordinary believers like you and I are referred to as saints. It matters in terms of our identity. When I was a little boy, I put a headband on and a feather. What was I? How did I conduct myself? When I was a little boy, I strap on six guns, put on a 10-gallon hat. What was I? How did I behave? Uh-huh. 
I put on a red helmet with a big thing down the back to keep burning embers from falling down the back of my turnout gear. What was I? Fireman. How did I act? I'm a sinner saved by grace. How do you act? Like a sinner. By God's grace, I am a saint. How are you likely to act? It may be a semantic issue, but I think in the way we live our lives, it maybe makes a difference. God wasn't done with Israel. He ran them through their basic discipleship time. He gave them an identity. They knew what they believed. They'd seen the plagues. They'd seen that Egypt experienced the plagues, and they didn't. They walked through the Red Sea. They had their aquarium experience. They saw the Red Sea swallow up the Egyptian army. They knew what they believed because they had experienced God's salvation in some extremely tangible ways. And this is where, for us, why are you this morning? I am for the praise of God's glory. Knowing what I believe, knowing who I am, and knowing why I am are three really important things to have under your belt. Because when the year was up at Mount Sinai, the Lord God, Deuteronomy 1, 6 and 7, said, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp in advance. And he instructed them to go to the promised land and take possession of the promised land. He said, I want you to go beyond belief. I want you to go beyond understanding who you are. I even want you to go beyond understanding why you are. I want you to put it all together, and there's a promised land for you. He said, go in and take possession of the land. You remember what they did? They sent out the 12 spies. I'm glad they did that because that is the biblical record of the first short-term mission, something I spent close to 25 years of my life doing. The Lord said, go in and take possession. They sent in the 12 spies, and what did they find? They found a land flowing with milk and honey, a wonderful, fruitful, beautiful land. The Bible says that they came home from that trip with a bunch of grapes that it took two men to carry. Now, I don't know the last time you went to the grocery store, but the last time I went to the grocery store, there were no grapes there that it would take two guys to carry. There just weren't. It was truly a fruitful and blessed land. So God had told them, ever since Abraham, God had promised them this place. He took them there. The place where he took them is called Kadesh Barnea. They came to Kadesh Barnea. God said, go in and take the land. They sent in the spies. The spies came back. Wonderful report, except there were giants in the land. They'd experienced God's protection. They'd had the miracles. They'd, they, they, they had the promise. 
They had the direct command to go. And there they are at the edge of the promised land. And because there were giants in the land, they chickened out. And the entire generation wandered and died in the wilderness. In the end, only two of them entered the promised land. Just like Israel, it is my firm belief that God will take each believer to his own Kadesh Barnea. He'll take you to the edge of the promised land. You'll be able to look in. You'll see a land that is filled with really cool things for you. We serve a marvelously creative God. Capable of designing an absolutely perfect setting where you can go and be who you are and do why you are, which is the praise of his glory. And you can do it But you know what? There will be giants in that land. And you will have to choose between Israel's response. And sadly, I know people who have chosen this one. They chicken out when they look into their promised land. They see the giants and they say no. Or they see the giants and they say, I'd rather pursue the American dream. I've known people who have done that and they've wandered and died inside in a spiritual wilderness for a long, long time. And it's sad. But I'm here to tell you that if you take those steps of faith, if you're prepared to take on the giants, and this is, this is my challenge today. Your theme this week is mobilize me. God wants to. And mobilizing you maybe doesn't mean you go into full-time Christian service and go to Africa. It doesn't necessarily mean you come on staff here at Cornerstone. It could very well mean that you do something that you're very good at in the secular working world, and you are who you are, and you very actively pursue the why you are thing, being for the praise of his glory. But he will take you to your own Kadesh Barnea. I'm now at my fourth. Okay? I can clearly identify four, at this point, four very specific times where God has taken me to a new part of my promised land. And it's required a lot of faith, and it's required a lot of dependence on God, a lot of prayer, but I'm here to tell you, when you step in in obedience... And trust him. It is the coolest place to be. So the challenge. What I wish I'd known way back then. I wish I'd known. That there was this process that God was working me through. Preparing me to come to Kadesh Barnea. My own Kadesh Barnea. So that I could glimpse. And eventually walk into my own promised land. Prepare for it. 
plan for it, expect it. And then get ready for God to rock your world. Because it's fun, it's exciting, it's extremely challenging, but it's good. God bless you and thanks.